Let everyone say amen again. God has been faithful to us. And I have learned that God is an investor. I didn't say investigator, even though he does that too. But God believes in investments. And he has invested a lot to humanity. And anyone who knows anything about investments, you do not invest in anything without expecting a return on investment. And so it is that as God has been faithful to us, what do you think he wants in return? He wants us to be faithful to him. And we're living in a time where our faith is being tried more and still more. And the furnace will get hotter before we will finally cool down and be at a nice, comfortable place. There is a very deep, a very real experience that God wants us to have. We are told and we are called to strive to be part of that group that will ultimately be translated and to see Jesus burst through those clouds. And I would imagine that many of us are striving for that. And the truth of the matter is, is that if we are striving for such a precious experience, then we have to understand what is necessary in your experience and in mine for that to be accomplished. We're going to talk a little bit about that today. Because God truly wants to prepare a people to meet him in peace. This year has been an eventful year. Records are consistently being broken in the financial world, in the atmospheric calamities that we consistently see. We've seen so many fires this year, especially conflagrations. We've seen a lot of hurricanes and storms. It has impacted our economy where, once again, we're spending money that we don't really have. America truly believes in monopoly. And we're using a lot of play money right now. And while we see things happening in the atmospheric world, things happening in various countries, crime is at, of course, an incredible high, especially when you look at our world. We obviously are breaking records. Last year, you know, 2016, that was the largest massacre that took place in America by one single gunman. And that's when that shootout took place at Pulse in Florida where those of the LGBT community came together and someone possessed by a devil came in and decided that they would play God and start to take down people's lives and choose whose probation should close. But then here it is in Nevada this year, that record is now broken. Right here in 2017, the largest massacre to ever take place by a single shooter in America. Breaking records all the time. We have a president that requires our prayers. Amen? And our world, our country is going in a direction 
that if something drastic does not change, we will destroy ourselves. But when we take our eyes off of the world, we begin to look at the church. We see compromise on the left hand and on the right. Ministers have decided to close the Bibles and to present intellectual philosophy to the masses. To give more of a message of what I think rather than thus saith the Lord. You know, I don't have any problem with a rainbow. A rainbow's in the Bible. Can you say amen to that? A rainbow's in the Bible. And I don't have a problem if somebody says, well, you know, let's go ahead and put a rainbow in front of our church to tell people about the covenant that God has made. But that's not why we're seeing a lot of rainbows in front of churches today. We are seeing that people will go as far as to manipulate the word of God to accommodate a class of people that have made a decision that our days of being persecuted are over and the days of us persecuting has arrived. And so it is that today we see ministers, churches that are closing their Bibles with the clearest testimonies. You know, one thing I always thought about is I said, you know, there's all this scientific talk and I, I, I know people and, and I appreciate many individuals from the LGBT community. I really do. Some of the sweetest people I've met are from this very community. And I have no doubt that God has love for every single one of them. No doubt. There's, there's no question in my mind about that. But I've learned we got to love people enough to tell them the truth of what God's word says. And, you know, I was having a discussion with an individual and we were talking about it and you know, going through all the scientific back and forwards. And I said, listen, to me, this is very clear. Kirk Cameron, are you familiar with that name, Kirk Cameron? He was in London, and he was asked a question about what do you feel about the LGBT lifestyle, and what would you say if your son said he was gay, et cetera? And Kirk Cameron would say, well, I, I would let him know that it's not natural, but, you know, God has a way to work with us, et cetera. And boy, was there an uproar. I mean, there was an uproar. People just got mad. And, of course, they began to persecute him pretty hard. And I thought to myself, why would anyone from the LGBT community be upset when somebody says this lifestyle is not natural. If you think about it scientifically, you know, there's a lot of science right now in X chromosomes and Y chromosomes and all these other things, but I thought to myself, here's the simplicity of the science. If God made people gay, then that means that gay people should be able to fulfill the words of, of Genesis chapter 1 when God says, be fruitful, multiply and replenish the earth. And the reality is, is that if I choose to live a homosexual lifestyle, I cannot fulfill that word. I need a heterosexual to enable me to continue my generations of whatever lifestyle I have. You need the sperm and you need the egg. They have to come together to produce the child. And if that cannot be done by female to female or male to male, then we have every biblical right to say this is not a natural way that God has made humanity. 
It's not to try to insult, but the word of God cannot be changed. But even not just in the political realm, but in the spiritual realm. We are finding that people are manipulating the word of God. Oh, Jonathan loved David more than a woman. So therefore, that means God says it's all right. And this is a very sad thing. Now we have gay pastors, gay elders, not just merely in all the other churches, but we see some of these things are creeping in God's very beloved remnant in these very last moments in earth's history. We are fussing and fighting and creating divisions amongst ourselves over things like whether a woman should be ordained or not. We got conservatives against liberals. We got present truth against precious truth. Then we got high-class present truth against low-class present truth. We are a divided people. And it seems like almost in every direction, from the left to the right, from the front to the back, there is confusion of faces. And that's why the Bible says, looking unto Jesus. If we could just take our eyes off of man, if we could just recognize that as long as we put our trust in men, we are under a curse. That's the simplicity of Jeremiah 17, 5. Thus saith the Lord, cursed be the man that puts his trust in man. Have you learned to take your eyes off of men yet? Have you learned that you must fix your eyes on Jesus like never before? because there will be more confusion on the left. There will be more confusion on the right. There will be more confusion in the front, and there will be more confusion in the back, not just in the world, but in the church. And we know this prophetically because you cannot read Ezekiel, the eighth chapter, and not see that. Ezekiel makes it very clear more and still more abominations are going to take place before this thing wraps up. And this is why, like never before, we must cultivate our minds to look up unto the hills from whence comes our help, knowing that our help comes from the Lord. This year has been an eventful year. People that I knew personally have died, not just merely members of the church, but even gospel workers. And I admit, I did not agree with everything that these gospel workers taught and said. I didn't agree with everything. But I knew how to respect the areas where they were actually doing something that was good for the, other, for, uh, for the betterment of their fellow men and their effort to seek to honor and glorify God. I think of a gentleman that a lot of us know, uh, probably are familiar with, Maimon Wilson, his wife, Deronda. She died this year. You know, I knew her personally. I knew them for over 20 years. She passed away. Then there's a guy, and a, a husband and a wife, who wrote a book, a book that has influenced so many institutions and churches and places when it talked about the subject that a lot of people don't like talking about, dress reform. That little black book called Thy Nakedness, Lord, What Shall I Wear? It, that, that book is in so many of our libraries. Wildwood, you could probably find it there. You can go to Uchi Pines, probably find the book there. Go into several ABCs, Adventist Book Centers, and you'll find that book right there. Thy Nakedness. Lord, what shall I wear? A whole book on the subject of dress reform. Written by a lovely couple. 
Rick and Gwen Shorter. This year, Brother Rick went to sleep in Jesus. There was a time years ago that people would go to Oakwood College. And when they would go to Oakwood College and there was confusion at the college, there was a man who had a burden on his heart. He said, you know, I'm going to do all that I can to try to help every student that comes through these grounds to know God's truth for this time. And I'll do the best that I can of what I know. He was a tall gentleman, Moses Mason. There are so many ministers and so many ministries today that have been benefited by many things that Elder Mason preached and taught. Some people won't say it publicly, but some of us are still politically correct. But there are some of us who knows there are many things that God used that man to say that has impacted our lives. And here it is on Thanksgiving Day. Our brother goes down. And a couple of days later, he dies. Now, we are praying that another brother will, by God's grace, even make it through the remaining days of this year. Another man who has impacted the work in a very large way, especially when it comes to health reform. Again, you know, I, like I said, you know, I'm, I'm mentioning names that some of us, we don't agree with everything they said, and I understand that I don't agree with everything they said. But I still can respect for the areas that God did use them. Now here we are with that. We need to pray for what appears to be the, the closing scenes of the life of another brother in the faith, Danny Vieira. Brother Danny, earlier this year, you know, when you think of Danny, you're thinking one of the most incredibly looking 60-plus-year-olds you've ever seen in your life. So, and so physically fit, always up there drinking some raw juice or eating some raw food and just, you know, Mr. Alkaline. He's helped so many people to appreciate and to understand, you know, eating a healthy diet, looking well. And he lived his message. I mean, he looked fantastic. But unfortunately, earlier this year, he puts out a video. He has cancer. Of all cancers, melanoma. A lot of us, I'm sure, thought, oh, he's going to beat it. His son puts out a notice just a few days ago, about a week or so ago. It is now officially stage four. It has metastasized and has gotten into his bones, several organs, and his brain. It's bar a miracle that we are soon to get another report of a soldier who has gone down. And so when I say that 2017 has been an eventful year, from the world's perspective, from the church, from every class in the church, one of the things that just keeps reminding me, and God is just reminding me, is, son, remember, time is almost finished. And Ellen White asked a very important question after she was inspired to make that statement in the book, Early Writings. She said, time is almost finished. And then here was the next statement. Do you reflect the lovely image of Jesus as you should? 
She said, said my attending angel unto me, get ready, get ready, get ready. You will have to die a greater death to the world than you have ever yet died. I believe this is a room of people dying. We are dying daily to the world, aren't we? We should be. But God says we will have to die a greater death to the world than we've ever yet died. And so as we prepare our hearts for, in my mind, a very simple study, I believe we still need the Spirit of God to help us have ears to hear what he is saying to the church. And so I'm going to invite you, as much of you as are able to, let's kneel together. Let's pray and let's ask God to prepare our hearts for what he desires to share with us at such a time as this. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for the privilege to kneel, to hear heaven speak as all the earth remains silent. Father, we ask that you will please forgive us of our sins. We pray that you would remove anything that hinders us from being able to hear your voice during this very sacred time. Lord, we want to lift up the Wilson household that you will give continued comfort to their son and husband of Sister Deronda who has passed. We pray for the household of the Masons, of the Shorters, that your comfort, your grace, and your love will be with Sister Gwen and Brother Marcus and Sister Maggie. Father, we pray for our brother Danny Vieira who's fighting for his life. Lord, we know that even in the very last moment, you have broken through on the behalf of those who were sick, and you have revived them. Lord, if it be for your glory and for Brother Danny's best, we pray, please, even now, perform a miracle and grant healing. And if it is not, I pray that all will be recorded as well between himself and his Savior before his probation would close. Help us, Lord, to cherish the moments that we have, to take every advantage to love our wives as Christ loved the church, that wives will reverence their husbands as the church is to reverence Christ, that as parents we will not provoke our children to wrath, but we will teach them and train them in the fear and admonition of the Lord. Teach us how pleasant and sweet it is to come to the house of prayer and to dwell together in brotherhood and unity. Show us, dear God, that this is not a day of war amongst your people. Yes, we are the church militant, and there are those who will choose to fight, but we don't have to be part of that. We don't have to choose to fight one another. Teach us how to press together. Teach us how even when we run across those whom we disagree with, that we will deal with it as Jesus did. We pray for the outpouring of your Holy Spirit. Give us eye salve that we may see. And I ask this prayer not only on behalf of my brothers and sisters, I pray this prayer for myself. Truly, life is fragile. Help us, dear God, to cherish every moment that you give it to us and that we will use it to glorify our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ, and to help our fellow man. This is our prayer that we do ask in Jesus' name. 
I'd like to invite you to turn your Bibles with me to the book of Mark, chapter 4. Mark, the fourth chapter. You know, with the Internet, the Internet has been an incredible tool for the devil. You can pretty much be educated on any phase of evil you choose. But the Internet also can be used for the glory of God. And there are many of us who are doing so. The fact that Wildwood has the cameras and all the things to load this up on YouTube and load all the past messages, the past trainings, and all, that is good that's being put on the Internet. And we thank God for that. We thank God for 3ABN. We thank God for every satellite network, every Internet website, everywhere where somehow we're using it for the glory of God to get the gospel out. And when I begin to think about this, I ask myself the question, Father, what exactly are you waiting for? We have the internet now. I remember preaching at a church in Maryland. And uh, when I was there, all the cameras were running. And when I made the appeal at the end of the message, there were some people who gave their hearts to Jesus at the meeting. When it was done, it was a primarily Indian church. And I remember that when the meeting was done, a brother came to me and said, Brother Lemon, praise the Lord. And I said, oh, yes, praise God. God is good. He blessed us this evening. And he said, no, you don't understand. He said, we had 25 individuals in India, a heavily concentrated Muslim territory that was watching the message on the Internet. And they sent us a message that 25 individuals accepted Jesus and the third angel's message. That's how powerful the Internet is. It can get to a lot of places where physically we may not get there. And so the gospel is going out. It's spreading all over. And the question is, is, Lord, what are you waiting for? Are you just waiting for us to, you know, uh, get into more territories and just continue to spread the message? Is, is that the simplicity of it? Is it we just travel more, we cover every area, and then we can kind of go back and say, all right, Lord, we did it. We covered the area. We preached the gospel. We gave the message. They understand the three angels. Now, come, take us home. I wish it was that simple. But the Word of God puts out a truth that we all would do well to consider and is found in Mark chapter 4. Now, if you're there, let me know by saying amen. It says in Mark 4, starting at verse 28, picking up in the midst of the story where Jesus is given the parable of the sower. And as Jesus continues in this, he says in verse 28, for the earth bringeth forth fruit of herself. What does the earth bring forth? Fruit. Now, it says... For the earth bringeth forth fruit of herself, first the blade, then the ear, after that the what kind of corn? The full corn in the ear, verse 29. But when the fruit is brought forth, now, if any of you have a middle margin in your Bible, you would see a word for that word brought. Does anybody see it? What does it say in that middle margin? Ripe. So when the fruit is ripe, it's very important. When the fruit is ripe, what is that next word? It says brought forth. What's the next word? Immediately he putteth in the sickle because the harvest is come. Now, Jesus, again, he's using parabolic language to teach very, very heavenly eternal truths. Now, according to the text, what is it that Christ is waiting for so that he could just take out that sickle and go ahead and bring in all the sheaves. What, what's he waiting for, according to the text? He's waiting for the fruit to be ripe, okay? Full grown. 
completely ready. That's why I love the way the verse was going, because this is the Christian journey. In verse 28, it's the Christian journey. First, the blade. Then, the ear. Then, the full corn. See, that is God's plan. In the plan of salvation, in the plan of redemption, there is also a plan of restoration. And in that restoration work that Christ wants to accomplish, it's going to be a first, a blade, and then an ear. But the Savior cannot come until there's full corn. There has to be a fruit that is completely ripe. It is ready to be harvested. Now, you and I, I would imagine, if you've ever, have you ever eaten fruit that was not ripe? You wish you didn't. It's bitter. It does not have the nutrient components in it to actually benefit the body that it was designed to do. We have no benefit plucking the fruit when it's not ripe. We have to wait until it's ready. Christ is saying, I'm not merely waiting for the proclamation of the gospel to go forward. Jesus says, that's not exactly what I'm waiting for in the fullest sense. Yes, it is true. Matthew 24, 14 and 15, the Bible's clear. And this gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in all the world for a witness. That's the part we keep forgetting sometimes. It didn't just say, and this gospel of the kingdom shall be preached. And then he'll come. it says, no, for a witness. That means that the people should be seeing fruit. That's what they're witnessing. They should be able to see something going on in your life, going on in my life. I remember a brother, he said one time in a sermon, preach the gospel and only use words if necessary. It's a powerful statement. You and I are supposed to be living epistles, known and read of all men. When people see us, as I said last night, they should be able to say, you have been with Jesus. There's something about your mannerisms. There's something about your character. There's something even about the way you dress that tells me you have a higher principle governing your life. You know, there's a lot of students that come to Wildwood and put on skirts, but when they leave, they sure do take them off. Conformity is different from conversion. God wants you to understand that when he gives you a dress reform principle, it is not just to conform to a standard or a rule for the organization that you are currently under. It's an eternal principle that God is trying to bring to you and I that even when we graduate, we're supposed to carry that thing onward because now we are going to let our light so shine. God says in every way, I want you to show forth the fruit of my love, my grace, my power. Of course, when we think about this fruit, we cannot help but to think about Galatians chapter 5. Let's talk about that fruit for a little bit. Let's go to Galatians 5. Now, when we go to Galatians 5, again, fundamental text, I would imagine. You know, a lot of us have gone through this before, but if there's even one person in this room who hasn't, I would like to go ahead and edify even that one person. So the Bible says in the book of Galatians chapter 5, when we think of fruit, we need to understand that. And the reason why we're going over this is because, again, the real goal, what Christ is looking for, what he's waiting for, is he says, I'm waiting for the fruit to be ripe. That's what I'm waiting for. I'm not just waiting for a message to be preached. 
God says, I can use birds to do that. God says, I want fruit. And so when we think about the fruit, we need to understand what God wants. So when we're in Galatians 5, 22 and 23, the Bible says, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, and temperance. Against such, there's no law against this. Jesus says you can manifest as much as you choose. Much love, much joy, much peace, much long-suffering. And what Christ wants is to see this fruit manifested in our lives, first starting in the home. And then from the home, it goes out to our neighbors. And then from our neighbors, it comes into the church. And from the church, it goes to the world. This is what Christ wants. It's an order. It's gospel order. Now, why do I say that? You ever met a husband who's nice to a lot of other women, but he's not as nice to his own wife? Kind of like a guy, you know, when, when he tells his wife, honey, now don't forget. Don't forget I asked you to do this, dear. And the wife says, don't worry, honey, I won't forget. Then the husband comes home and he says, honey, you remembered? The wife goes, ah, I forgot. And the husband, just his face, his countenance changes. And he looks at her like, how could you forget? Didn't I ask you? Didn't I tell you earlier? Please don't forget. Why is it that you forgot? And the wife says, look, I'm sorry. Husband, come on. I mean, really, we've been talking about this a lot. So the wife says, all right, I deserve that rebuke. Fine. So then one day that husband comes to church. And that husband told a sister last week, don't forget, sister, to bring such and such for me, all right? And the next thing you know, the husband goes to church with his wife, sees the sister. Sister, did you remember to bring that thing I asked you about? The sister said, ah, I forgot. And then the husband goes something like this. It's okay. <laughs> These things happen. Next time, just try to remember, okay? Bring it for me next week. Can you promise next week? Yeah, I'll bring it next week. Okay. And that husband turns around, and he's looking at his wife like, that wife is like, hold up. When I forgot, the beast power in you came out. <laughs> but when she forgot, the lamb in you came out. So I really mean what I'm saying when I say that when we study this precious fruit, we must understand that that fruit must first be manifested in the home. And then the neighbors. And then the church. And then the world. That's gospel order. Now we are back at my quote from last night. You didn't ask me. Last night, I gave you a quotation. It was from volume five of the Testimonies to the Church, page 213, where it talked about the seal of God. And it said there are many who even keep the Sabbath, keep the Sabbath that will not receive the seal. It said there are many that even teach the truth that will not receive the seal of God in their forehead. It says they had the light of truth. They knew their master's will. They understood every point of their faith. But what was the problem? Who remembers? They had not corresponding works. Now, here's the other part of the sentence. Those who were such students of prophecy should have lived their 
faith, they should have commanded their households after the Lord. Can you imagine that some people will not receive the seal of God because they do not have corresponding gospel works manifested in their homes? God is paying more attention to our homes than we understand. God is looking for wives who really love their husbands, husbands who really love their wives, parents who really love their children, children who really love their parents. We are living in the anti-typical day of atonement, my brothers and sisters. And we need to understand that God believes in first things first. And so when we look at that wonderful fruit, love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance, first should be manifested in the home. And then from the home, where's next? Neighbors. From the neighbors, where's next? Church. From the church, where's next? The world. This is how God will bless your gospel, medical, missionary, evangelistic work. God will bless your work. You'll see. This afternoon, I'm going to show you a connection between the home and healing. I'm just going to show you that. If we are not children of God in our home, it will literally frustrate the healing work. You're going to see the connection this afternoon. And so what God is showing us is that we need this wonderful fruit to be manifested in our lives. And when Jesus sees it, he will come. Now watch this. I was studying Jesus. And as I was studying Jesus, I tell you, some of the most enjoyable things sometimes is putting together uh, messages for God's people. Because the Lord will bring things to your mind. And it, and. God teaches me. I can't speak about how he teaches the rest of you, but God teaches me through questions. God will literally, I'll read a verse, and I lie to you not. When I turn from that verse, you'll literally hear a voice say, in, in my mind, it'll say, go back to the verse, look at it again. And then I'll go back to the verse, and I'll be like, all right, and I'll go back to the verse and look at it again. Now, I know it's not the devil, because the last thing the devil wants to do is to uplift the word of God and have us study it prayerfully and carefully. Gala uh, not Galatians, Great Controversy, page 519 says, Satan well knows that those whom he can get to neglect prayer and the searching of the scriptures will be overcome by his attack. So the devil is not going to walk you through verse by verse to make sure you have prayerful, careful understanding of the word that it might be applied in your heart and in your home. Satan will never do that work. So I knew this is God leading me. So he says, go back to the verse. I go back to the verse and God will say, what do you see? Then I look at the verse and I'm like, I'll learn something about my Savior. Truly, that John 5.39 text is so true. Search the scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life, and they are they which testify of me. It's like amazing when you study the Bible, and you are going there, and you're looking at it, and God says, what do you see? What do you see? It was a man who walked these grounds that taught me how to study like that. He sleeps. What is his works and his words live on? Elder W.D. Frizee. He taught these principles. And I'm thankful that I was one of his students to say amen. And I'm learning this and I'm watching God talk to me through his word. So I began to study it out because we're talking about the fruit of God's spirit. As I looked at it, I realized. 
And the angel answered and said unto her, The Holy Ghost shall come upon thee, and the power of the highest shall overshadow thee. Therefore also that holy thing which shall be born of thee shall be called the Son of God. The Spirit of God was present in the life of Jesus. Jesus was filled with the Holy Spirit. And therefore, when I look at the life of Jesus, should we not see the fruit of the Spirit? And so here it is. When I started to look, I said, look at that. Jesus himself is love. Jesus himself demonstrated love. John 13, 1 is a beautiful verse. The verse says that Jesus loved them till the end. His love never stopped. Jesus has never-ending, unending love for you and for me. Then I started to look at it again. Then it says, watch this now. Jesus had joy, Luke 10, verse 21, and John 15, 11. You remember, he said, my joy is what I give unto you, and I want to make sure that my joy remains in you. Jesus himself had joy. Then also, Jesus had peace. You remember what he said in John 14, 27? He said, my peace I give unto you. Not as the world gives, give I unto you. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. Jesus was long-suffering. Can the church say amen to that? When he was reviled, he reviled not. When he was put down, he did not put back down. Jesus was so incredibly long-suffering. Then Jesus was gentle. Matthew 11 and verse 29, when the Bible, when Jesus makes it clear, he says, For I am meek. And lowly in heart. Literally, when you look up the word meek in the Greek, it literally means gentle. Jesus says, I'm gentle. He deals gently with us. And I say, thank you, Lord, for that. Then Jesus was good. The Bible makes it clear in John 5, 39, that all the scripture reveals Christ. Psalms 86, 5, it says, the Lord is good. Christ is good in all that he does. Then Jesus is our source of faith. That's why the Bible says in Hebrews 12, 2, that he is the author and the finisher of our faith. And then Jesus was meek. Again, Matthew eleven twenty nine. 29, that same word, when he said, I'm meek, it didn't just mean gentle. It also meant humble. Christ was a humble servant of man as well as to God. Temperance? How could you not read Matthew 26? Verse 42, not my will. He lived a whole life of not my will, but thy will be done. I came not to do my own will, but the will of him that sent me. One day they came to him and their soldiers getting ready to take him, and Jesus says, put away your sword. He says, don't you know if I wanted to? I mean, Jesus had serious temperance. Jesus said, if I wanted to, I can call a legion of angels right now and take all these people out. But Jesus said, but how shall the scripture be fulfilled? He chose not to exercise what he could have done for the sake of glorifying his father and strengthening you and I. So when I think about the fruit that God wants us to show, that fruit is none other than Christ-likeness. That is the fruit. Whenever you think about it, what is Christ waiting for? He's waiting for that fruit. He's waiting for a manifestation of himself because as long as Jesus has possession of our heart, he has no problem letting us in his house. The father can't let us in his house right now because we don't have hearts like his son and we might do a Lucifer part two. 
And so God says, I can't have that. No, no, no. God says, I want to have people that are just like my son. And so when the Bible says first the blade, then the ear, then the full corn, the ripeness, he's talking about, I want to see the character of my son ripe in my people. Why? Because the object of the Christian life is fruit bearing. The reproduction of Christ's character in the believer that it may be reproduced in others. That's the whole purpose of our life. Every day God wakes you up, God says, I woke you up so you can bear some more fruit. What's the fruit he wants? I want to see the character of my son. And he doesn't just want to see it in the public square. He wants to see it in the home, dealing with husband and wife, dealing with children, even when we're by ourselves. Christ says, I want to see myself in you. I want to see my character in you. This is what Jesus is looking for. And it's our duty. As long as we name the name of Christ, as long as we call ourselves seven-day Adventist Christians, Jesus says that I want to see the fruit of my character. And he wants to see the fullness of it. So this is the goal of God. This is what constitutes our gospel, medical, missionary, evangelistic work. How can I be an instrument of God that I can help others, first and foremost, see the fruit of Christ's character in me, and then I can help them also manifest that fruit? How can I show them? In other words, what really at the end of the day is the purpose of the fruit? What's the purpose of fruit bearing? What is the purpose of it? Say again. To reflect God's character. Give me more. Anything else? Is there anything else? The harvest, so that the harvest can come. True that. Anything else? There's more. Say again. To bear seeds. All right, go to Isaiah 55. Look at what the Bible says. Let's think about it. What really is the great purpose of why God wants to see all this fruit in us? Isaiah 55. Notice what the Bible says. We're in Isaiah, the 55th chapter. And I want you to watch what the text says. Isaiah 55 is a very powerful We're going to start at verse 6, but we'll close it at verse 10. Isaiah 55, we'll start at verse 6, and then we will close it at verse 10. The Bible says in Isaiah 55, starting at verse 6, if we're there, please say amen. The Bible says in Isaiah 55, verse 6, Seek ye the Lord while he may be found. Call ye upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts and let him return unto the Lord and he will have mercy upon him and to our God for he will abundantly pardon. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, saith the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. Now watch verse 10. We're entertaining the question, what is the purpose of the fruit bearing? It says in verse 10, for as the rain cometh down, And the snow from heaven, and returneth not thither, but watereth the earth. So what does the rain and the snow do? It waters the earth. But watereth the earth, and maketh it bring forth, and bud, that it may do what? Give seed to the sower, and bread to the eater. Question. What is the purpose of us bearing fruit? To give seed to the sower. Now, who's the sower? 
That's God himself. You understand that? So one of the reasons God wants us to bear fruit is because it gives seed to the sower. Let's think agricultural for a minute. When the seed comes to the sower, what does the sower do with those seeds? He plants more. You understand that? He plants more seeds so he can get more of a harvest. So one of the first reasons God wants us to bear fruit is so that he as a sower can have more seeds so that he can go ahead and produce more of a harvest. Now, what do we do that in practical terms? Do you know that this is, according to Isaiah 55, 10, this is the only reason why God allows martyrdom. Do you understand that? Do you understand that that's the only reason? Have you ever thought about it? I mean, I know Christians go through this at some point or another. Don't we ask the question, Lord, why you let your people get cut down like that? Remember a few years ago when, the, when our, our Christian Ethiopian brothers were uh, caught by, uh, what's that group called, ISIS? And, they, and they, they, they beheaded all of them by the water, by the, by the sea? Why would God let that happen? Why did God let John Huss burn at a stake? Why didn't God just, whoop, just miraculously save him or whatever? Why did God let that happen? Because God understood When my children are faithful unto death, it is like sowing a seed that when the next generation comes up, they too will be faithful unto death. You understand that? God says that when you're faithful, it's like giving me seed that I can go ahead and spread it about more so that another generation can be just as faithful as you were. Just as faithful. So one of the reasons God needs us and wants us to bear fruit is so that he as a sower can have more seed and he can say, look at what my son did. He stayed faithful. Now I'm calling you to stay faithful. And God can produce another harvest and another heart and another heart and another heart and another heart. But I'm so glad that we're told in that wonderful chapter, God's people delivered in great controversy, that a time shall come that once Jesus says, let him who is filthy be filthy still. Let him who is holy be holy still. Whoever is on God's side that is alive at that time, will there be people who will try to kill them? Yes. Will those people be killed? No. Why? Because there's no more work in the sanctuary for the salvation of others. It's over. There's no more need for his people to be killed because there's not another generation that needs to rise up to be faithful unto death. That's the only reason why God allows his people to go through martyrdom. That's the only reason why, so that the next generation will say, they held on to the end. Praise God. Father, give me strength that I might hold on to the end. God says, amen. That fruit gave me seed that now I can put it in the life of them. But it's not only that, is it? What else did the verse say? It's not only seed for the sower, but then it also says what? Bread to the eater. You see, People should be able to benefit off of our growth in Christ. When Jesus was filled with the Holy Spirit, the Bible says in Acts 10 and verse 38 that he went about doing good. He made people's lives better. He blessed people. He would take parents who had children who were hurting and he would help those children not hurt anymore. He would go ahead and meet people who were hungry and he'd go ahead and feed them. 
You see, when the character of Christ is reproduced in you, when it's reproduced in me, it now becomes fruit that others can eat from it. They can literally say, have you ever had anybody in your life that it seems like almost no one else can inspire them? But when they talk to you, they're inspired. Do you have anybody that you've touched like that? I hope so. There are times that we know that people literally feed off of our energy. You know that same book, Christ Object Lessons. Do you know it says a time comes where we must give people our faith, our hope, our strength? I had to do that. True story. My wife and I were in the room. My wife and I prayed. We said, like, oh, Lord, please, Father. We believe that you led us thus far to Dr. Wong in California. We had to pay cash for our open heart, for my open heart surgery. We had to pay cash. Leap of faith. Because had I got it done in New Hampshire, oh man, they was going to go ahead and just replace it with a mechanical valve. I'd have been on Coumadin for the rest of my life. And because of other complications, it would have been a very serious problem. I, God led me to Dr. Wong. Dr. Wong said there's a handful of surgeons in America that know how to repair very diseased valves. I said, Dr. Wong, are you one of them? He said, yes. I said, that's why God led me to you. So a series of events happen. My wife and I go, I'm serious. Sometimes we got to learn how to give people our faith, our hope, our strength. When I went to Loma Linda, they did the TEE, the transesophageal echocardiogram. They put that thing down my throat, and Dr. Benzel, he looked at it, and he saw my valves, and Dr. Benzel put on that, he put on that paper, valve irreparable. He said, my valve was in bad shape. He said to my wife, Mrs. Lemon, your husband's valve is regurgitating so bad, he can't even walk up a flight of stairs without being winded. What he didn't know is that I was literally doing brisk walking for two miles in less than 28 minutes, and I wasn't winded. It was like God, I don't know if you ever read those quotes where God says he supervises every heartbeat, every nerve, everything. Literally, God was just watching Dwayne's heart like, uh, uh, oh, no, 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 we're not going to let that happen yet. <laughs> God is just holding it down. Well, here it is that I remember going to see Dr. Wong. I said, Dr. Wong, Dr. Benzel says my valve cannot be repaired. What do you say about that? Dr. Wong says, I get the final say as the surgeon. I said, all right. My son, I remember, he put his arms around my wife and I. When we prayed the night before, I had to go see Dr. Wong. My son said, Father, you brought us here for a repair. In the name of Jesus, we claim that repair because you gave us the evidence. My son, at that moment, had more faith than I did. And so I remember, I said, all right, we go to there. And my wife and I said, look, if they say that they got to do a mechanical valve, we might as well go back up to New Hampshire because it doesn't make sense to pay cash to get a repair when you know, we can use our insurance and just get a mechanical valve and live with all the issues with that. So we go see Dr. Wong, you know what he says? Wayne, I looked at your report. You don't only have a regurgitating mitral valve, he says you also have a diseased aortic valve. He says, Dwayne, we cannot do repair. I mean, if only you could understand the silence in the room for that moment. I remember looking at my wife because my wife went through a lot with this process. And I'm thinking to myself, like, Lord, what do you want us to do? He just said it. Now what? God immediately brings to my mind, tell him. Tell him what? God brought it to my mind. 
Tell him now. I said, Dr. Wong, there was a man who went to London. He went to preach. He went to bed on a Friday night. When he went to bed on the Friday night, he planned on getting up so he could go ahead and preach on Sabbath morning. When he went to bed, his heart stopped. He did not get oxygen to his brain for over 30 minutes. I said, Dr. Wong, what's the prognosis? That brother is dead. And if he lives, he's going to be a vegetable. I said, I agree. That man will be here on Monday for my surgery in sound mind and sound body. His name is Thomas Jackson. I then said, Dr. Wong, God did a miracle for Thomas Jackson. I said, Dr. Wong, do you believe that God can do a miracle with your hands and repair what is being titled the unrepairable? Dr. Wong looked on the ground. He looked at my heart on the screen, and he said, I think we can do it. I said, Dr. Wong, I know you can do it because Jesus will be in the surgery room guiding your hands. At one time, he said, I don't have your faith. My wife is telling me, um, she was right there, heard him say it. I don't have your faith. I said, that's okay. Lean on mine. <laughs> you got to learn that the other purpose of fruit is so that other people can eat from it. You're going to run into a lot of people who are weak, a lot of people who are suffering, a lot of people who are challenged to the core. And as much as you're going to encourage them, have faith, have faith, have faith. For some reason, in their minds, they can't receive what you're saying. And so we have to, in a, in a very symbolic way, we have to say, eat some of my faith. Take a bite of my faith. Take a bite of my courage. What does that mean practically? That means practically, for a few days, I'm going to call you. I'm going to pray with you. I'm going to go ahead and avail myself on another level than I normally avail myself to help others. I'm going to do what I can to involve myself so much in your life that every step of the way, we are going to have courage. We are going to demonstrate strength. We are going to trust God, and eventually I'm going to be able to let go of your hand, and you'll be able to fly on your own with your own strength, your own courage. This is needed in medical missionary work. It's going to require that, but this is the great purpose of fruit. That fruit is to give seed to the sower. That fruit is to bless others who will eat from us. But the one thing that fruit is not for is for the branch. You've never seen a branch benefit from the fruit that grows off of it. Isn't that something? So in other words, God does not give us all these wonderful things so we can bless ourselves. He gives it to us purely that we might bless God and bless our fellow man. That's a life of serious self-abnegation, self-sacrifice. None of me, none of you, all of Christ. Can you imagine that? This is literally what God is saying. So as I begin to look at this, Jesus wants us to understand, I want to see my character in you. Jesus wants us to understand, I want you to bear fruit, because that's what I'm waiting for. And when I see that in its fullness, Jesus says, I can come, because you read it in Mark 4. It says immediately, immediately the sickle's put to it. 
So the reason Christ is not coming yet is not because we're not preaching enough. The reason Christ is not coming yet is because we're not allowing his spirit to have his way in our hearts from the home to the community to the church to the world. And when God can see this taking place, now you do understand like Jesus served, to minister like Jesus ministered. You do understand it's going to involve something that Sister Lynch mentioned last night. I know I caught it. I don't know if you caught it. She used a very important word. I said, when she said it, I said, man, that's that. I said, we got to build off of that. God providentially allowed her to say that. She said the word risk. Risk. You said that last night? Those of us who risk. Risk. I said, amen. And the reason I said amen was because it's dangerous to our carnal minds to love people as Christ loved because sometimes it makes us vulnerable that we might get hurt. Somebody might say something mean to us. Somebody might do something unkind to us. Somebody might treat us in a way that is not reciprocating the love that we're showing to them. This is one of the reasons you know why husbands and wives have a lot of issues. That husband or that wife, sometimes they're like, I do not want to make myself vulnerable because he'll hurt me again. I do not want to make myself vulnerable because she'll hurt me again. So sometimes we put up these man-made guards. I'll love you just this much, but there's a certain aspect of love I'm going to withhold because you hurt me, and every time I release this love to you, you keep hurting me. So I'm not going to show that level of love to you because if I do it, you're going to hurt me, and then I'm going to get mad, and I'm going to get hurt, and da 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 And when we go down this path, so can you imagine there are actually husbands and wives? I would imagine not in this room. Can you imagine there are husbands and wives that actually have been married for decades? And there is an aspect of their heart that they literally withhold love from one another. There's a certain level where they're like, I'm not going to do that again. Uh Uh-uh, he'll hurt me. She'll hurt me. Mm -mm." And I thought to myself, is that the way God loved us? You see, do you remember our opening verse, John 3.16? For God so loved the world. Sometimes we got to understand this. God so loved the world, what did he do? He gave what? His only begotten son. The only one that was like him. Now watch this. He gave his only begotten son. Was there some risk in God giving his son? What was the risk? Huh? How could he lose him? How could he lose Jesus? Failed? What I want you to consider is this. Contemplating God's love is so sweet. I hope you spend time doing it. God so loved this wicked planet, your wicked heart and my wicked heart. It was while we were enemies, Romans 5 says, that God gave his son for us, okay? Now, I'm thinking about this. I'm trying to digest this. What was the level of risk that was involved? Go to Isaiah 13. In Isaiah 13, you'll remember that Jesus lived on this earth 100% man. Is that right? He was 
100% man. He was 100% God at the same time. But he suppressed his godness. He said, I refuse to do anything in the name of my godness. I'm going to live on this earth 100% like a man lives on this earth. So Jesus is a human. Now, as a human, he could be tempted. Tempted to sin. What would have happened if Jesus would have sinned? Isaiah 13. The Bible says in Isaiah 13, verse 6, it says, How ye, for the day of the Lord is at hand, it shall come as a destruction from who? From the Almighty. It says, Therefore shall all hands be faint, and every man's heart shall melt, and they shall be afraid. Pangs and sorrows shall take hold of them. They shall be in pain as a woman that travaileth. They shall be amazed one at another. Their faces shall be as flames. Behold, the day of the Lord cometh, cruel both with wrath and fierce anger, to lay the land desolate, and he shall do what? Destroy the sinners thereof out of it. To become a sinner, you need to sin. Had Christ sinned, he would immediately have become a sinner. What happens to the sinners? They are destroyed. Literally, the Father and the Son covenanted. We love these people who hate us, who can't stand us, who we can prophetically see will spit in our face. They'll kill our servants. They will profess our name and practice the most vile and gross sins literally in the same day. God says, these people, we love them so much, the Father says, I'm willing to give. The Son says, I'm willing to go. But they understood, Son, you do understand that if you sin, which you are wholly susceptible to doing, if you sin, the Father was saying to the Son, if you sin, I will have to destroy you. Do you understand that? The Almighty destroys the sinners. This is the risk of risks. This is vulnerability on the highest level. God so loved wicked people that he said, I will take the risk of putting my son right in the midst of them. I'm going to let him live with them, among them, for 33 and a half years. And son, I love you. But even if you sin just once, I will have to destroy you. That's the risk that heaven took. My brothers and sisters, I now understand when inspiration says we will spend eternity seeking to understand God's love. Because that makes no sense to my natural carnal mind. You would be willing to do that for wicked people? God says, yep, I love him that much. I'm willing to make myself that vulnerable. I'm willing to take that level of a risk. We said it right here. It's right here. Satan in heaven had hated Christ for his position in the courts of God. He hated him the more when he himself was dethroned. He hated him who pledged himself to redeem a race of sinners. Yet into the world where Satan claimed dominion, God permitted his son to come, a helpless babe, 
subject to the weaknesses of humanity. He permitted him to meet life's peril in common with every human soul, to fight the battle as every child of humanity must fight it at the risk of failure and what kind of loss? God understood. I will have to destroy you. And the son said, I will submit to your destruction if I sin even once. You got to understand the gamble. You got to think about it. You got to sit down. And then when you get a close look at your heart, it bursts from our hearts. Why would you do that for me? Why would you do that for I would never do that. And Christ says, and you can't come into my kingdom until you will do that. Go to 1 John chapter 3. Notice what the Bible says. That's not my words. That's Jesus' words. 1 John chapter 3. The Bible says in the book of 1 John chapter 3, watch the text, family. 1 John, the third chapter. This is what the Bible says. <laughs> I love studying John's writings. I'm serious. The Gospel of John, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, you got to study it. I mean, and you would do well to study that before studying Revelation. Because once you study Revelation, it's the same writer. So you know he's speaking on the same theme. Because some of us get caught up into beasts, marks, dates, and charts, and we forget about the revelation of the Son of God when we read Revelation. Sometimes we forget it. We just holistically forget it. We get caught up into all the other points, but we neglect the very key point. I'm supposed to see Christ in the midst of all the prophetic utterings. Now watch this. In 1 John 3, the Bible says in verse 16, Hereby perceive we the love of God, because he did what? He laid down his life for us, and how does he conclude? And we ought to do what? Lay down our lives for the brethren. Christ says, the way I love you, I'm calling you to love them. And when I was willing to love you, I made myself wholly vulnerable. God says, therefore, I'm calling you to love others. And I want you to understand there will be risk. You must make yourself wholly vulnerable. That you're going to get hurt. That you're going to be disappointed. That you are going to perhaps live with a knife in your back. Christ says you will bear nothing. I have not borne first, and I have not borne more. How in the world can we get a love like this? How can I love my wife like this? How can I love, how can a woman love her husband like this? How can parents love their children like this? How can children love their parents like this? I mean, this is love that has nothing to do with the human carnal heart. This kind of love? Mm -mm, that's foreign. But God says, that's the only love that I find acceptable. That is the love. You see, I believe, my brothers and sisters, right now we're under some serious testing times in Adventism. You know why? Because a lot more wickedness is rising up. But you know what's happening? God is paying closer attention than ever before to see what are you going to do about it. There are some people right now, when they see wickedness in the church, there's no evidence that there's fasting praying and pleading with these souls to turn away from their wickedness and come to Jesus. When some people mess up in the church, there are some websites, it's top news on their ministries. 
They're telling everybody, look at how so-and-so has taught error. Look at how so-and-so has failed. Look at how so-and-so has committed sin. We're living in the time where it's almost cool to blow up our brothers and our sisters on worldwide networks and show the sins that are happening in people's hearts and in God's church. This is, this is becoming the thing. This is the new thing. And I'm thinking, man, what if Jesus would have did that with me? What if Jesus would have did that with those preachers that are doing that? As if they're sinless. As if their wives are sinless. It's funny, if their wives sinned, which I'm sure their wives did, I don't see them putting up any top news. Look at what my wife did. Look at how my wife just sinned yesterday in the kitchen. They're not putting up any messages, but they want to keep taking God's wife and say, look at what God's wife did. For some reason, that's okay. But they won't put their wives up who they know they've seen sin. That's hypocrisy. What I'm saying, family, is that God is testing us. He's trying us. He's saying, listen, the manifestation of true God-like love will not be revealed when everybody's nice to you. The manifestation of true godly love, true Christ-like love, that manifestation is going to be revealed when people are ungodly towards you. The question is, how do you handle that? Are you going to be a man and a woman of vengeance? Or are you going to do what Jesus did? You know what Jesus did. Go to 1 Peter chapter 1. Watch this. We're getting to our close. Go to 1 Peter chapter 1. What did Jesus do? Chapter 2, sorry. 1 Peter chapter 2. What did Jesus do when they did all these things to him? What did Jesus do when they did all these things to him? He is our pattern man, isn't he? The Bible says in 1 Peter chapter 2, watch this. 1 Peter 2, starting at verse 21, talking about Jesus. It says, for even hereunto were ye called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that you should follow his steps. Now, watch this, verse 22. In the midst of his suffering, verse 22 says, who did no sin, neither was guile found in his mouth. Now, watch verse 23. Who, when he was reviled, what does it say? He reviled not again. When he suffered, he did what? He threatened not. When he suffered, he threatened not. But what did he do? He committed himself to him that judges righteously. You and I cannot be men and women of vengeance. God says when people revile you, when people do wrong things to you, he says, that is your moment. I want you to commit yourself to him that judges righteously. And remember that he said, vengeance is mine. There is no get back like God's get back. When God gets somebody back, it's perfect timing and it's righteous judgment, whatever it is. And God wants us to understand that we must manifest this precious heart of Jesus. This is the fruit that he wants to see, because we're getting ready to go into the time of trouble. My brothers and sisters, you got to understand, 
We're getting ready to go into the time of trouble. We're getting ready to enter into that time where great persecution is going to take place amongst the faithful. And when that happens, as I said last night, when you get squeezed, whatever in you is going to come out of you. It is imperative that we have Christ in us, the hope of glory, because when you get squeezed and somebody slaps you in your face, somebody violates your wife, somebody does something evil to your children, you have to understand we need to respond like they did in the dark ages. Because that's all the time of trouble is. It's a dark ages part two. That's all it is. Once the papacy gets the control it wants through the superpower, United States of America, once the papacy gets that back, it's going to show a face that this world has not seen in a long time. It has not changed. Apostate Protestantism. Protestantism has changed and become apostate Protestantism. But the papacy has not changed. Anybody who studies Jesuits, oh, please, everything that the Jesuits do is being done right now. And it's all to do two things, eliminate Protestantism and reestablish papal supremacy. That's all these efforts are going forward to. So once that comes, you and I got to understand what it means to endure. When that time of trouble comes, you and I cannot get last-minute Christ-like characters. It's not going to work. You can get a last-minute education on some things. You can get last-minute intellectual knowledge, but you cannot develop last-minute Christ-like character. It has to be the blade, then the ear, and then the full corn. It's a growing process. What God is saying is today, if you hear my voice, don't harden your heart. God says, listen, I am looking for this fruit. Now, how can we get it? Right here. I'm going to leave you with this point. If we're going to manifest Christ's likeness in its fullness, then I would imagine we need to make sure that we learn to do what he did on a daily basis. In Ministry Healing, page 51, it says the Savior's life on earth was a life of communion with nature and with God. It says, in this communion, he revealed for us the secret of a life of power. I have seen in my own experience, I can study and I can study hard. I can travel and I can preach and teach and so on. But what I have found was weak in my own life, and I believe weak in a lot of God's people's lives. I certainly can't say all, because I don't know you like that. But the more that I talk with God's people, I find that our communion time with the Lord is very weak. It's very weak. It's very shallow. It is not, it, it, we're not intentional. You see, the purpose of a devotion is that at the end of the experience, I'm more committed to God. I'm more in love with him. Devotion has in that word devote. When you devote, 20 years ago, I devoted my life to Alexandra DeRay, who is now Alexandra Lemon. I devoted myself to her. I said, I am yours. You are mine. We will be one. And then we grow in that love. 20 years later, I'll tell you, I love her even more. And God wants us to understand that the purpose of a devotion is not just to go through a mechanical reading. 
It's not just to flip open an iPhone and just look at a quick devotional. Oh, I'll do Reflecting Christ this morning. I'll do Maranatha tomorrow. Okay, now I'll do In Heavenly Places. And we just jump all over the place. And we figure that as long as I got a word in, I'm having devotion every morning. God says, no, you can't fall in love with me like that. You didn't fall in love with your spouse like that. You spent time. I remember my wife and I, we get on the phone, we would play with each other after two hours of talking. And here it is, it's like, all right, got to go. All right, got to go. Okay, hang up. No, you hang up first. All right, you, all right I'm going to hang up right now. Okay, go ahead, hang up. Why you didn't hang up? Now nah, you hang up first. I mean, just silly. Absolutely silly. But that's how, that's how much we loved it. It was like, I, just, I love hearing her voice. You know what I'm saying? It's like you just, I just can't wait to hear a voice. It's love. That's what love does. God says, I sure wish I could have that with my people. I mean, God wants to spend quality time with us. Christ spent quality time with the Father, but he did it in nature. He surrounded himself by the scenes of nature. There's a science in this. You need to study this. There's something about going in nature. And boy, I tell you, as a parent, I remember one morning, my wife and I were in bed. It was about 5 o'clock in the morning. And my oldest son, Jared, he comes in the room. Hey, Dad. I was like, yes. He said, listen, if you're looking for me, I'll be outside. I said, what are you going outside for? He said, I'm getting my communion with God. I said, go on. We live on a nice property out there in the mountains, and and, and it's a blessing, and there's some really good places that you could just find your spot. You remember in Mark 1.35, it says Jesus went into a solitary place, and he there prayed. You need to find your spot. Some of you who said, I'll be at Wildwood for another year. Find your spot. Pick your spot. And don't tell me about cold because I don't want to hear it, because I'm from Massachusetts. Talking about cold. Shame on you. You are in Tennessee. Tell me about no cold. It's not cold. You come up where we're at. I'll show you cold. <laughs> Bundle up. Find your spot. Talk to him. and Let him talk to you. Reflect the image of your master. Jesus got up. Jesus found his place. And in that place, Jesus would go and he would talk to the the Father would speak back to him from the Word. They had communion. and That's what gave Jesus that energy. That when Peter came in Mark 1 and verse 36, and he said, Master, the whole village is looking for you. Jesus didn't say, ugh. <laughs> Jesus said, I got energy. Let's go serve the people. And Jesus, with that energy, the Father charged him up. And Jesus was ready to go. He was ready to give his strength, his hope, his courage to them. That's what God wants to do with every single one of you. That's what God wants to do with all these precious graduates. Please understand, don't fall into the trap of the rigmarole, the, the doing business as usual. All the workers at Wildwood, let those young people see. Let those adults see. Let those students see from president down. Let them see you go into your special place. That's how you lead. That's how Jesus led. 
That's how Jesus led. He said, I'm leading by example. I'm going to go. And, and, and when they walk out on the grounds, they're going to, oh, there goes the president, right? Oh, there goes the, the teacher over here. What? There, goes the, there goes a guard. These, boy, these people really are communing with God. Maybe I should be doing that too. They're eating from you. You understand that? But when they see you hustling, drawn out, dragged out, oh, another problem. Oh, and we're just complaining and, and just worn out. The people start to eat that. have something called a talent of influence. You see, we can love like Christ loved. This is what I believe. I'm going to show you some things about power this afternoon. Because I want it. It's my life work. I will not rest and I will not be at peace until I have it. Because I see what God wants to give me. My brothers and sisters, I leave you with this little story. It's a very simple story, and it's a story that happened on Facebook. I really don't like Facebook because it's an incredible distracting tool. It's a lot of decent, well, first of all, it's a lot of wickedness, but then there's a lot of even decent things. But sometimes it's amazing how you say, I'm just going to check my message. And then 15 minutes later, 20 minutes later, oh, really? What happened? Oh, that happened too? Oh, and... We get drug in. And before you know it, you can look back at a week and say, man, I put about almost an hour of my time into Facebook, reading posts, and all this other stuff. What I'm saying is, is if you're going to go into Facebook, and if Facebook keeps your face out of this book, we got a problem. You got to make time to keep your face in this book. But nevertheless, I was on Facebook. There was a wonderful picture. I have learned to appreciate the, sim the simple things. Seriously, God has, God has shrunk back. You're talking to a guy who grew up in the world. I did so much in the world that it's pathetic. I, I am truly a reformed worldling. I mean, like, for real. I did a lot of bad stuff. And my pleasure centers became very big. When a child comes into this world, their pleasure centers are very small. That's why you could buy a toy for a child, and literally, when you give the child the toy, they will play with the box that the toy came in more than the toy. Children have very small pleasure centers. It's very easy to please a child. As we grow up, we begin getting caught up into false forms of entertainment and all these other things, and what happens is our pleasure centers get very big. So now it takes a lot for us to be pleased. Now we, we need real stimulating stuff to keep us going. So that was me. You know, in the world, amusement parks, video games, movies, all that. Pleasure center's huge. So what God has been doing on my mind now is he's been shrinking my pleasure centers. And so what I'm finding is, is that, man, I was, my wife and I, we did a meeting in Livingston, New York, and it was a nice hot day, and I had worship outside, nice nature all around, and I was outside, and literally, I mean, I lied to you not, I was on the, uh, on the uh, ground there, and after I finished having worship, I saw an ant. And I said, hey, Solomon says study the ants. So I started looking at the ants, and I am just having a blast. I mean, I'm looking at the ant, he'll come up and look at me, and you see his little tentacles, and then he goes back down. And I'm just like, is he going to come back? And then he'll come back up again. <laughs> I'm just like, look, this is cool. I'm, I'm, like, literally, I'm enjoying this. I am literally enjoying it. I'm 45 years old, and I'm enjoying this. And I'm just like, that is so cool. And next thing you know, another friend comes up, and all these little ants, and they're just doing their thing. And I'm just like, 
pleasure centers. God can shrink your pleasure centers. He can get you back to that place where you can appreciate the simple little things of life. So on Facebook, it was a simple picture. It was a picture of Jesus and a little girl. And the picture of Jesus and the little girl, Jesus is leaning over with his hand out to the little girl, suggesting, give me what's in your hand. The little girl has a teddy bear in her hand. And the little girl is in a posture of resistance. So she's kind of like this. And they put the little bubbles. And the little girl is saying, but I love my teddy. But what she didn't realize is that while Jesus had one hand out like this, he had a gigantic teddy bear, 10 times the size of that one. And he's like, if you give me that, whoop, he's ready to go ahead and give her this incredible surprise. And that simple picture to me just said, you know, it's a blessing. We serve such a savior that he says, you think the things that I'm calling you to surrender, I'm trying to do it to hurt you. He says, what I'm trying to do is introduce you to a happiness that nothing on this earth can steal. You see, when you read John 15, 11, the Bible makes it very clear that Jesus said, I give you my joy. He said, the purpose of me giving you my joy, if you do everything I tell you to do, he said, I do this so that my joy might remain in you and your joy will be full. Christ says, that's what I'm trying to give my people. I'm trying to show you what a joyful life is. You know, some of us, we put joy for heaven. We make earth sound like it's just dreary, drab, and terrible. But the joys will come in heaven. And Jesus says, well, I'll tell you what, there is an aspect of joy that you will only realize in heaven. And that's why he, he does that on purpose. He doesn't want us to get so happy on this earth that we don't want to go to heaven anymore. So he keeps that there. But he says, don't you know you can have a little heaven on earth? Now, where, where did God designate for us to have a little heaven on earth, in the home. That's why we keep talking about the home. Every other place looks like hell. God says, you should be able to come home and say, here goes my heaven. And the question is this, how many of you, when you come home, can say, my home likens heaven? That's the question, family. And if you can't answer in the affirmative, when I am in my house, my home reminds me of heaven, then you know your first work. Jesus wants his joy to come upon you, and he wants that joy to be full, and he wants the rest of those precious fruit from the love and the peace and the long-suffering and the gentleness. He says, I want all of it to manifest in you, because then you will have the fullness of my love, my joy, my peace, and now I have seed, and other people can eat from you, and you will truly be blessed. Get your communion with God. Find your spot in nature. Do it just like Jesus did it. Do not look to the left hand or to the right. Let no man be your criterion. Look to Jesus. Follow his example. Spend that time, and you will find that the more you spend time with God, oh, my brothers and sisters, something special happens. You know what happens when you spend more time with God? I'm going to show you this last point. We'll close. I'm going to go past all this here. I had some other things to share with you, but you know, we'll go into it another time. Go past that. Yep. Good. 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 
I want you to see this. It's so beautiful. Yep, prayer structure. We're going to talk about that a little bit. All right. As the student of the Bible, I want you to watch. This is what should happen in your communion time. It says, as the student of the Bible beholds the Redeemer, there is what? Awakened in the soul a what kind of power? Mysterious power of faith, adoration, and love. Upon the vision of Christ, the gaze is fixed, and the beholder grows into the likeness of that which he adores. That's what's going to happen in your communion. You start having sweet, precious communion with God. As a student of the Bible beholding your Redeemer, there will be awakened in the soul the mysterious power, faith, hope, adoration, and love. Upon the vision of Christ, our gaze must be fixed, family. Thou will keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee. Upon the vision of Christ, the gaze is fixed. That means you've got to stop looking at everybody else. What are they doing? How are they responding? Who cares? That is not your business. Let them walk with God. You make sure your gaze is fixed. It's the vision of Christ, the gaze is fixed. And the beholder grows into the likeness of that which he adores. God promises you it'll happen. You'll be amazed. Have you ever asked yourself, have you ever studied Jesus' character? And you said, Lord, how are you going to get me to reflect this? I know I have several times. Lord, I am so unlike him. Are you sure you can do this in my heart? God says, give me a chance. I'm the master at doing this. God will awaken in you a mysterious power, a suddenly faith. Adoration, love for Jesus will birth in your heart. And now, once these things take place, we are better prepared to go into those mission fields when we meet those people who are very much unlike God. We will not render evil for evil. We will not revile when we've been reviled. But we'll commit ourselves into the hands of one who judges righteously. And people will say, I don't like what they preach. People will say, I don't like what they do, but I must admit, they do reflect the stories that I read in the Bible about that man, Jesus. God will have a living testimony in your heart and in mine. And the question is, how many of you are willing to cooperate with God that he can truly manifest his fruit in you? If your response is, yes, Lord, I'm willing, then I invite you to stand to your feet. You will find that as you are taking your stand, Christ will do a miracle in your life. I wonder if there's someone in this room that you have never even surrendered your heart to Jesus. Maybe you have never, ever made a decision to say, my life is no longer mine. I surrender everything to you. There are some people in this room that have never made that decision before, perhaps. And if you've never made that decision, this is a grand opportunity to make such a decision because this is where it begins. We cannot expect God to do all these incredible works in our heart and in our lives if we have not first accepted him as Lord and Savior of our life. Lord and Savior, not just Savior. Everybody wants a Savior, but they hate having a Lord. 
because the Lord tells you what to do and you can no longer do your own will. And so a lot of us come to church and we come to church regularly, but we do not let God have his way in our heart. We have not surrendered. Therefore, there's even one person in this room that says, you know what, that's me. I, I'm, I'm, I'm religious. I come to church. I'm spiritual. All of that. I've, I've been around my SDA friends or other friends, but I've never made a personal decision to follow Jesus, to let him now be both Lord and Savior of my life. If there's even one person in this room, whether you're in the back room, whether you're upstairs, or whether you're any place else in this building, if you're hearing my voice and you know I have not surrendered, and listen, I'm talking to elders, I'm talking to deacons, I'm talking to a pastor, I'm talking to anybody who has ears to hear, because profession means nothing. Profession is nothing. I'm talking about real religion. The kind that is undefiled. The kind that heaven approves. A true Christian is a soul whose life is surrendered to Jesus Christ, which means you don't rule it anymore. Now you are letting God rule it. You don't have to know everything. It's a decision. And then God helps you along the journey in that decision. Is there even one in this room who says, Preacher, you're talking to me. I want to surrender my heart to him, and I want you to pray for me. If there's even one person in this room that says, that's me, I'm going to ask you to please slip your hand up in the air. If that's you, praise God, I see your hand. Amen. I see your hands. Any others? This is a very serious appeal, family. We want all these blessings from God, but we have not done our first steps. The life must be surrendered. It's no longer my will. It is God's will now that is going to be done. You're not putting any guarantees to God. The Bible's very clear. When we surrender to him, if we sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. God makes it clear, what I want right now is I want your heart. I want it fully submitted to me. God says, I will change you. For those who raise their hands... I'm going to ask you to do something that I'm going to do too. I'm going to ask you to step forward as I step down. I want to pray with you. And so if you're raising your hands or if you know you didn't raise your hand, but God has spoken to your heart, and you know I've, I've never really surrendered my life to Jesus. I haven't. been kind of playing the game of religion, doing my own thing, uh, kind of took my plans and told God, bless it. But I never really submitted and said, Lord, I'm willing to submit my plan, and if you're willing to change it, then change it. That's submission. Can you imagine you've been in a career for 20 years, and then God says, I want to change it. And you say, Lord, thy will be done. That's submission. You're giving God a blank sheet, and you're letting him rewrite the story of your life. No longer your will. His will now shall be done. That's why you're coming forward. And I know that God will bless you well beyond your expectations. Great joy, great blessings are coming your way. In fact, it's already here. It's time for us now to take hold of it. Think about the words of Jesus. Peace I leave with you. My peace give I unto you. Not as the world giveth, give I unto you. And then he says, let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. Now, think about that. That means that Christ left the blessing. So what do you think he wants you to do? Take it. Just take it. 
by faith, Lord, I accept. I take this blessing that you have left for me. Now, let it have its sanctifying effect on my heart. That's going to be our prayer. Is that all right? All right. Church family, this is a wonderful day. It's a beautiful day. All heaven is rejoicing. If we let our ears be attentive enough, you can hear the angels singing because many precious souls have made a true surrender to Jesus Christ. Let us pray together. And if we can, let's go on our knees together for this prayer of consecration. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we truly praise you, O oh God, for what you have accomplished today. There's such a great work to be done and little time in which it is to get done. And so we praise you and thank you that your spirit is testifying that Jesus still lives. For these precious souls who have come forward have recognized that religiosity is not the answer. It is about a life that is surrendered to Christ, a life of not my will, but thy will be done. Father, thank you. Thank you for this beautiful moment. I pray that you will bless my brothers and my sisters in a very marked manner, that we by faith will take hold of what Jesus, thy son, has left for us, his peace, his love, his joy. We accept it by faith. We ask for more and still more of thy spirit. Give us strength to love as you loved. Give us strength to have a peace that passes all understanding. Give us strength that we might be temperate in all things. Father, I pray. Help us that we might be counted amongst those whom you will see your fruit of your son's character ripened within us. Help us to remember that living the Christian life involves risk. It involves making ourselves vulnerable. But we will do no more than our precious Savior has done for us. And if you sustain him through it all, you will sustain us through it all. Abide with each and every one of us who made our decisions. You know the battles that are going on in our hearts. I pray that you will turn our homes into a little heaven on earth. I pray, dear God, that you will teach us to reach our neighbors. Lord, I pray that you will help us to be more faithful disciples in your church. And Oh, God, I pray that you might bless us as we go to touch and reach a dying world. And I am grateful that though this might seem impossible with men, all things are possible with God. Continue to keep us faithful, we pray, for we ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www dot audioverse dot org.